Please be seated. And all of our children who are three or four years old in kindergarten through third grade can head to Children's Church at this time, and you can head out the back. And just a reminder that if you have not registered your children to do so downstairs at this time. If you have your Bible with you, would you open up to the book of John? John chapter 3. So we're going to spend our time this morning. And uh, just a quick little commercial for what's ahead uh, next Sunday. Uh, we begin a new study through the epistles of John. That's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And I'm looking forward to that. So make sure you pick up the sermon study guide. Uh, there's, they're stationed at a few different places around the church. But grab one on your way out today. And uh, you can start by reading 1 John this week. It won't take you very long. And uh, then we'll jump in uh, into the deep end next week. And 1 John, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know about you, man. I love Christmas. I'm crazy about it. I, look, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to think I'm weird, but let me just explain to you how much I love Christmas. I have already started listening to Christmas music for next year. That's how deep my love for Christmas goes. I know, it's wild, but what are you going to do? Uh, John chapter 3. Today we're going to spend our time thinking about the Advent theme of love. Now for our Advent Sundays, I chose preaching passages that spoke directly of the coming of Christ. Even our First Timothy passage spoke of Christ's coming. Uh, but today's passage is a little different. Today's passage doesn't speak of the coming of Christ. It speaks of the giving of Christ. And in order to understand love in a deeper way, today we're going to study just one verse, John 3.16. Now, John 3.16 is perhaps one of the best-known and most-loved Bible verses in all of the church. It's one of the first Bible verses that children learn uh, in Scripture memory. Uh, and it's a verse that if, if anyone can quote one verse of the Bible other than Jesus wept, this is probably the one uh, that everyone can quote. And I think because of that, because of its familiarity, because of our affections for it, it might be an overlooked verse. I've heard it preached most often uh, for the sake of the lost, and that's not wrong. That, that should happen. Uh, but I've been thinking lately about what this verse might mean for those who are found. Can a Christian learn anything about love from John 3.16? If a man named Nicodemus can learn about God's love, surely we can also. Who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the man in conversation with Jesus when these words in John 3 were spoken. Nicodemus was a prominent Jewish leader. John tells us that Nicodemus belonged to a sect of Judaism uh, known as the Pharisees. And we know quite a lot about the Pharisees. They were very devout. They took the law of God very seriously. And so Nicodemus would have been a worshiping man. In fact, there's a lot about his worship practices that we would find familiar. He was a tither. He was a, a weekly worshiper. Uh, he emphasized the word in his worship. Uh, there are ways in which we and Nicodemus have a lot in common. Uh, we're also told that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, also called the Sanhedrin. So he is a really big deal, really important um, really significant among the Jewish population in and around Jerusalem. And people like Nicodemus did not speak to Jesus unless it was to accuse him or condemn him. The Pharisees, among other gr religious groups at the time, hated Jesus. 
They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was tearing down power structures. They wanted him dead from early on in his public ministry. But Nicodemus had questions. He was curious. He wanted to know. And so John chapter 3 opens with Nicodemus finding Jesus at night. He sneaks out and he goes and he finds Jesus so that they can have this conversation and he can ask some questions of Jesus about the kingdom of God and what it's like. So I wonder, Nicodemus had things to learn about God's love. Do you have anything to learn about God's love? Yeah, you do. I promise you, you do. Again, I know it's a familiar theme. It's an Advent theme. But to think that any of us have a full grasp and understanding of God's love is just a little silly. I want you to listen to how uh, pastor and author A.W. Tozer described the vastness of God's love. In his classic book, Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, God's love is an incomprehensibly vast bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence. Yet, if we would know God and for others' sake tell what we know, we must try to speak of His love. All Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. So as I stretch my heart toward the high, glorious love of God, someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. So today, we're going to look up and have hope by considering the love of God. My goal today is to expand your experience and understanding of God's love both for your own sake and for the sake of others. To do that, in John 3.16, I want to show you three facets of the love of God. All right? John 3.16 is written this way uh, in the Bible I'm reading this morning. It says this. Jesus is speaking. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. If you memorize that as a child, you likely memorize it in a, you definitely memorize it in a different translation. Uh, there's King James language that naturally comes to our minds when we think about this beautiful passage, beautiful verse. And we'll talk a bit about that here in a moment. Um, but this verse has atomic potential for our understanding and experience of God's love. I want to show you three facets of God's love from this verse. The first is this, it's love's target is all people. Who is it that God is targeting with his love according to John 3.16? He's targeting all people. Now, I've wondered if Nicodemus was told to fill in the blank, how would he write this sentence? For God so loved blank. What would Nicodemus put there in the blank? He might have said, uh, God loved Israel. That wouldn't be incorrect, and there's plenty of Old Testament evidence to show that. He, he might have said, God loved Israel. Those who keep the law. As a faithful Pharisee, that might have been a place where he would have come down. He might have said, uh, God loved those who loved God. There's possibility for that kind of answer. Now, I, I don't want to assume incredibly negative things about Nicodemus, 
However, I find it highly unlikely that he would have answered the world because that wasn't on the Pharisees' radar. The only way the world would have been on the Pharisees' radar was only in so much as the world became Pharisees. Pharisees were, in ways, an evangelistic group of of Jewish people, and they wanted to bring people in. So to say the world would be, under his understanding, to be saying those who are Pharisees. But Jesus gives no such qualifiers. God loved the world. So what does Jesus mean by the world? I'm, I'm comfortable with two answers here. First, to say that God loved the world is to say that God loves people from every people group, every ethnicity, Jew and Gentile alike. God's love is not just for ethnic Israel. God's love is not just for those within Judaism. God loves the world, present company included. Second, to say that God loved the world is to say that God loves sinners. The world is not populated by righteous people. The world is populated by sinful people who need rescue from their sin. God loved sinners. God loves sinners. God's love is so unlike our own. We dislike people for such small reasons, for petty reasons. Do you have any pet peeves? Like, do you have reasons why you would write people out of your life if they did this thing or whatever? I had this conversation with a friend a while back. He said he couldn't stand people who lie. I thought he said he couldn't stand people who fly. And I thought, what a miserable existence that would be every time a plane flew overhead. I hate those people! But we all have pet peeves. Here's a couple of mine. I would like to vote off the island people who drive with their brights on in town. And when you're coming at me on Main Street and I flash my high beams at you to tell you your brights are on, just turn them off. And then tell me, even though I can't see you and I won't hear it, just tell me you apologize and you regret that choice and you'll do better next time. But don't drive with your brights on. It is highly annoying and it makes me think bad thoughts about you and what your future should be. Um, Another group of people that... I struggle with those who would, this may be too much information, those who bite their utensils when eating, like teeth on a fork, I I can't handle that. That just, that gets me in a big way. In high school, I went on a date with a girl I liked a lot. She played golf. There was a lot of things I liked about her, but she bit her fork at dinner, we were done forever. And (laughs) praise God that that's the case, but... I don't like the fork biting, the spoon biting. It's a thing for me. Off the island. Pack your bags. You're out of here. There you go. Look, the the reality is we are well equipped to not love people. Uh, It is alarmingly easy for us to vilify people. I've, I've even heard religious justification for hating people from other religions, certain people groups who make certain choices. But Jesus said God loved the world. And this is not a sign of weakness in God. It's a compassion and a grace so much deeper than human love that we can barely recognize it as love. If God loved the world, then that's good news for you. God loves you. I mean, have you ever considered the power of that simple sentence? We we treat it as if it's so cliche, which shows how little we understand our sin and God's holiness. To be able to utter these simple words, God loves me, 
is a huge deal. Look, you know your faults, your mistakes, and your sin. You know the reasons he should not love you, but still he does. God loves you. He doesn't love you because you have potential or because you're better than someone worse than you. He just loves you. And Christian, he doesn't love you because you pray or because you avoid sin or because you do good things or because you're generous. He just loves you. The person who says they can't be loved by God because they've done so much wrong is loved by God in spite of their wrong. And the person who insists that they must be loved by God because of all they've done right is loved by God in spite of their self-righteousness. So let us never doubt the love of God. God's love for you is a personal love. It's right to call it an intimate love because God doesn't love populations. He loves people. He doesn't love masses. He loves men. He loves you by name, your life, your breath. He loves you. Friends, never doubt the love of God. So who is love's target? Well, it's all people. It's you. Second facet of God's love we want to consider this morning is love's evidence. And the evidence of God's love for us is the cross. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. Now, this is probably not the language with which you memorize this verse. If you memorize it in the King James, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's how it plays out in our minds. So why is it written in this translation in a different way? The hang-up comes with the word so in our popular understanding of the word so. For God so loved the world. The way we normally treat that word is, is as describing the intensity of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, it's true that God's love for us is intense. But that's not the meaning of the word so in that uh, old translation, faithful translation. Um, The word so means here's a demonstration. This is the way in which God's love is seen. God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world, he gave. So that's not to diminish the intensity of God's love for us, but it is to highlight that what Jesus is saying is that God's love is a demonstrated love. It is real. It's tangible. God loved the world in this way he gave. The proof of his love is that he acted on it. So in what way does God demonstrate his love? God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So God's love is not theoretical, it's not philosophical, it's not hidden and secret, known only to a select few. God gave His one and only Son. Uh, The popular author Bob Goff said this, love is never stationary. That's what we've learned from God's love. His love acts, His love is demonstrated, His love is seen and known, He gave. And we always define love by action. Now, to be sure, words are not unimportant. It's important that we use the words, I love you. But action gives weight to the words. For example, if you were to ask children, how do you know your mom loves you? How do you think they would answer? This just a little guess on my part. I I doubt they would say, I know my mom loves me because she tells me she loves me. Now, there's no doubt she tells the children she loves them. 
But I think the answer you might get is, I know mom loves me because she does this and she does this and this and this and this. And they would rattle off all the things mom does that communicates love to them. And they might say words, and that would be great, but they wouldn't only say words. They would say, here's the actions. That's how we know love. How do you know that God loves you? You know God loves you because he gave his one and only son for you. That he gave his son tells us this was costly. This was sacrifice. This was what our sin required. This was what love required. He gave his one and only son. In the King James, it's only begotten son. There's healthy scholarly debate about whether the phrase should be translated only begotten or one and only. Uh, we do not have time, nor are we nerdy enough to dive deep into that this morning. I've read three articles on it, pretty much an expert now, and I'll tell you, I think both are right. There's merit to both arguments, and the English language is just too limited to give a full description to this incredible concept. That's another conversation for another time. But still, it's vital we recognize that God the Father gave God the Son. The Father did not send an angel. He did not recruit a man. God the Father gave God the Son to be the sacrifice for our sin. To say that he gave is also to say that God the Father knew what would happen to God the Son. He knew what would happen because he ordained it. There's this inseparable connection between Christmas and Easter, between Bethlehem and Golgotha. The Son wasn't dispatched. The Son was given. God's love was on display at the cross. You were not on the cross. God's own son hung there. You did not pay that terrible price. Jesus did. So since we have experienced and seen God's love through the death of the son, we who are his children are to follow his example. And Jesus is not silent on this. Love does not come to a terminal stop with the recipient. Love calls for reciprocation. When we rebels against the holiness of God experience God's gracious, merciful love in full, it leaves us with no other alternative but to live in the same way and to love others in that same way. Listen to how Jesus taught us to love. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. How are you loving your Christian brothers and sisters, how are you loving other believers in such a way that a non-Christian would see it and say, tell me more about that? I've not seen that. But I'm really curious. Why would you do that for each other? John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If we measured your love for Christ by your obedience to his word, what would your grade be? Matthew 5, 43 Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who is your enemy? How do you know they're your enemy? Were you God's enemy? Are you loving your enemy? How do you know? In John 15, 12, Jesus said this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So how did Jesus love us? He loved us by laying down his life. Do we love each other in ways that are convenient or costly? 
The clear evidence of God's love for you is Christ on the cross. And Christ on the cross compels us and strengthens us to love others in the same beautiful heavenly way. That's what love looks like. So love's target is people. Love's evidence is the cross. And the third and final facet of love is love's result. Love's result is eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, and and here's the reason why. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The benefits of Christ's love, of God's love and Christ's death, are not given automatically to everyone in the world. Eternal life is given to those who believe. Now, there's a common mistake we make whenever it comes to making sense of the word believe. What does that mean? Everyone who believes will have eternal life. We'll commonly make one of two mistakes. Either we will lower the meaning of believe or we will legalize the meaning of believe. Let me describe what I mean. We lower the meaning of the word believe uh, whenever we turn it into mere intellectual agreement or just cultural recognition. People may recognize the name Jesus or they can point to some religious education they had when they were little. And in that way, they might say, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I went to VBS when I was a kid or I, I went to Catholic school or I, whatever. I did the thing. And so there's recognition. There's a cultural awareness. There's no relationship, no personal engagement, no personal trust, just intellectual agreement. There was a Jesus, and I recognize that name. Is that the belief that Jesus is speaking of here in John 3.16? Surely not. Absolutely not. Because according to that standard, Nicodemus believed in Jesus. He's having a conversation with him at night, face to face. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, he's right here. But there's something lacking in Nicodemus's knowledge of Jesus. So belief cannot be lowered to just intellectual assent. The other mistake we make, though, is we legalize the word. That's when we say all you have to do is believe, and belief is evidenced by being baptized, going to church, avoiding the bad things, doing the good things. And when that list is checked, then you can say with confidence, I believe. But there's no faith in following rules. There's no need to trust if you're going to keep man-made requirements in order to get God to love you or to bend your way. So is that the kind of belief Jesus is talking about? Is he just instituting a new law? We're going to do away with the old law, and now I've got a new law by which you might earn your way to heaven. Certainly not. So what does it mean for us to believe? Quite simply, the Bible teaches us this, that belief in Jesus requires two things. That is, turning and trusting. These are the key words in Jesus' opening lines in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 15, the first recorded words of Jesus, excuse me, in Mark's gospel. Mark 1, 15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, there's your turn. And believe, there's your trust. So turning and trusting is what belief looks like. When we turn, the Bible word for that is repent. We're turning from all of our sin and all of our self-righteousness. I think we forget that component. A lot of times we think repentance is turning from sin 
And then I'm going to bring along my self-righteousness to help build my case with Jesus. I'm going to trust you, and I'm super religious, and now we're good. That's not what repentance looked like. Repentance, according to Paul, was all of this is mess. He used more colorful language. I'm just, I'm going to leave all of this mess behind. And I'm going to trust entirely in Jesus. I'm going to turn from who I was to him entirely. And I'm going to trust, I'm going to rely on his death and resurrection to save me. So if someone were to ask you, how could you know you're a Christian? I know your past. I know all your mess-ups. I know all your failures. How can you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? You would say, Jesus died for my sin, and he rose again. And that's the only way me or anyone else is going to get to heaven. I'm going to trust in that because I can't be good enough to get there on my own. No one can. We turn and we trust, and that's what belief looks like. And when you do that, God grants you eternal life. When we think of eternal life, we normally think of this never-ending period of time in which you can perfect your golf game and do the puzzle that's giving you headaches for weeks, or you can whatever the thing is you do in eternity, right? We think of many, many, many years. That's not theologically incorrect, but perhaps we should recognize first that eternal life is quality of life before it is quantity of life. Because Christians live today, here and now, in the eternal life of Christ, even while the world around us is decaying under sin. That's the reason why at Christmas time we can speak of themes like hope and peace and joy and love. Christians are the salt of the earth, preserving and purifying the lives of people around us with the gospel of Christ. Christians are the light of the world, shining the gospel light and leading people out of darkness. That's what eternal life looks like in its qualitative form, in the here and now. It's a present-day reality. God's love for us in Christ is life-changing eternally in this moment. So John 3.16 teaches us about God's love. I wonder if there's anything a Christian has learned today about God's love from this verse. We've learned that God's love is for all people. The evidence of his love is the cross. The result of his love is changed lives, eternal life. Now, if Nicodemus were asked to write John 3.16, it might sound like this. He might say, For God loved Israel in this way. He gave them his law so that everyone who keeps the law will not perish but have eternal life. Maybe. Maybe prior to his conversation with Jesus. If our culture, if the world around us outside of the church were to write John 3.16, it might sound like this. For God loved everyone in this way. He affirmed our self-identities so that everyone who lives their truth will not perish but have eternal life. Maybe. But the message of the Bible is so very different from what those in the world or those consumed by legalism might say. In fact, the message of the Bible is a really simple message about God's love and mercy, and about man's sin and need, and about the rescue that's found in Jesus Christ. It's a simple message that we teach to our kids when we read to them from this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, We've in the past made this available to families in our church. We just give this to you so you can read uh, these children-friendly stories from the Bible to them. And I want to read to you a few words from this that help us see the simplicity and the power 
of the love of Christ. It's written this way. So you're a king, are you, the Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life, the king of heaven and earth who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, our king, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the Son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl, or when he stilled the storm, or when he fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Today you've heard of God's love. You've seen it displayed. You've been called to love like Christ. My prayer for you is that you will fulfill Paul's command in Ephesians 5 to walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Let's pray together. Father, we use these words all the time, but it's almost impossible for us to understand the depth of their meaning. To say that you are love or that you love the world or that you love us, we know that in a worldly sense, like by the way people define words, but to think about it in a spiritual sense, in, in the magnitude of eternity and glory and your perfection and your never-changing character. God, we, those words come out, but we don't understand how huge they are, how important they are. And so, Father, convinced today, my friend in here that doesn't know you as their Savior, would you help him or her to turn to you and to trust you, to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their own salvation? And God, for my brothers and sisters who come in here struggling today, Lord, give us a never-ending curiosity and wonder at your love for us. You've proven that love through the gift of your Son. You have rescued us from our sin. And you continue to show your love in all the ways you preserve us and hold us and sanctify us for that forever day. So God, let us live eternal life in the here and now as we walk in your way and follow in the love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's give praise.